Um, let me pray, and then we'll hop into Isaiah 42, picking up where Hope left off, doing her masterful job last week, and then we will, we will crack into chapter 44. Let me pray. God, we're grateful for a, another week where we can gather together as your people. Um, there's something enjoyable and profound about studying Scripture, and it just seems like it's more so and deeper when we do it together. I love gathering with your people because your spirit just becomes more tangible, more difficult to ignore, and the testimony you have about yourself and what you're doing in our lives is all the more powerful in numbers. So God, I'm grateful for this time that we have together. I'm grateful for your scriptures, and I'm grateful for the incredible picture we have in Isaiah of the gospel, hundreds of years before the fact. Uh, I pray that we would be sensitive to what you have to say this morning, both in here and in the service, and uh, I ask that you would give us malleable hearts that look for opportunities to be transformed into the likeness of your Son. Be with us this morning, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Okay. So Isaiah 42, we're going to pick it up in verse 18, but actually I would appreciate it if we would start by turning to Romans 3. We have spent um, quite a bit of time now in this large book, but the, we, we need to remember that the subtitle for this, uh, this study, actually the whole purpose of this study was to find the glimmers and the glimpses of the gospel in Isaiah. Um, it's pretty difficult to read Isaiah without finding them, but I want to make sure that we are intentional about um, getting a, a wide view of Scripture. You can get lost in the minutia, especially of a large book like this, but um, this book talks with other books so much, and, and that's probably a good principle to even um, remember. I, I get a lot of people asking me, hey, I want to study such and such. What commentaries should I get? Um, or I want to buy a set of commentaries. Which set should I buy? And my answer is always no sets. There's no such thing as an altogether good commentary set. Um, but the question is, I'm studying Romans. What, what commentary should I get? And I can give a couple of examples. But a lot of times we think that in those books are the secrets to unlock these, to unlock these texts. And I would say the most helpful way to study the Bible is to let it interpret itself to pull texts and set them aside one another, and they'll start to clarify one another. Isaiah on its own can be difficult. Isaiah next to Ezekiel and next to Romans and next to Revelation, the details start to shake out. Things begin to clarify themselves, and, and that all goes back to our, our understanding of who God is. He's altogether consistent. There is no, um, there is no disagreement within himself. And therefore, if this is the providential God who, um, who inspired the writers of the Scriptures, we can, trust him, we can trust Him to maintain a degree of coherence with the Scriptures. Therefore, I can, I can, I think, trustfully read Isaiah and Romans next to one another and think that they're speaking to some degree with the same voice. 
different situations, different human authors, even very different personalities between the authors, but the underlying principle in terms of the guiding providential person is, is a very, very consistent God. So I want us to look at Romans 3, um, and actually we're going to take 10 to 15 minutes to do this together. So um, bunch up in groups of five or six, and you don't have to read it out loud. Probably it would be best to read it on your own, but read the first 26 verses of Romans 3. And here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to just explain the whole thing. Well, this verse means that, and that verse means that, and then in verse 3, it really ha- I want to know, can you boil down what Paul is saying in the first 26 verses, or 26, yeah, 26 verses of Romans 3, can you boil that down to a sentence or two? Can you summarize what he's trying to say? So I want you guys to bunch up, probably read it on your own, and then discuss how to summarize Paul's message, and then come back and we'll see how this can be um, very, very helpful to reading Isaiah 42 through 44. Before we, uh, before we start talking summaries of 26 verses, any interesting details worth noting? Anything catch you off guard? Any small questions? I mean, it's like your children questioning you about things that you will allow to happen. My wife will discipline our son to the point that he doesn't like it or he's uncomfortable or whatever for his good. But then, like, someone else tries to inflict any degree of pain on him, and she will murder you. (laughs) And I I see in in God a, a protective parent. He says, no, like, I get to correct, even if it's painful, because I have, like, their best in mind. I, I, I will love them to such a degree that I'm shaping them in a direction. But someone else inflicts harm on my child and just watch me come unglued. It's, it's a, I, I do see a lot of, like, a godliness in a mom that is not scared to put Matthew out of his comfort zone for his own good, but then will cut you to pieces if you touch him. That's, that seems pretty godly to me, actually. Yeah, and so there's this, you know, if Matthew were to question my wife, which he loves to do, but if he were to question either one of us in terms of our disciplinary, um, like whatever we choose to do to discipline and shape him and, and help him learn, like I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, you're right. Like, I'm like, you're a kid. You have no clue what we're doing. You don't have the vision we have. You, you, you have like a temporary understanding of you wanted gummy bears so you took them when we said you couldn't, so now you're going to have to suffer the consequences. You think that we are the most unjust thing in the, on the planet. Well, you're a three-year-old. Relatively speaking, you're an idiot. So why am I asking you about this stuff? That's, I think that's what God says to us all the time. Relatively speaking, you, to call you an idiot would be a compliment. You are so much further below that compared to the wisdom of God and the foresight, and the, and the understanding of the long plan with God. 
It you know, goes back to, I mean, Hope talked about it last week. We talked about it the week before, the, the questioning of God in the book of Job. I mean, and God has a lot of patience for people that want to challenge Him and question Him. But at some point, He'll say, all right, idiot, shut it. Let me tell you how it is. Let me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? It's kind of a, yeah. So it, we, do, we do get this way with God's wrath or judgment. Why would you do that? I can't believe you. That's so mean. You foolish human being. You think, you know, you're so arrogant. What else did we see? Any questions? Any, wow, that's weird. And that's, and that's a game Paul plays. There are benefits to being Jewish um, in terms of expectations, in terms of access to the, uh, to, like, the revelation of God. I mean, there are benefits to growing up in the Midwest in terms of my own like, connection to the church and my act, like, the access I have to hear the gospel preached that I don't have in Japan. And, and we would be foolish to say, no, like, everyone's got an equal shake. That's just really not the case. And for, I mean, Paul, the Jews lived in Oklahoma and the Gentiles lived in Japan. That's kind of how it was for him. And there, was, there were, like, even special responsibilities and therefore um, unique punishments that would go to the Jews. I mean, I think that God looks at me much more severely were I to reject a gospel plainly preached to me every other day of my life than he would a... Japanese person who never hears it. Now, I think that that doesn't mean that God has, like, they get into heaven because they didn't know. The Bible actually says, no, they're still culpable to Him. But I think that I have, like, a special defiance that will be met with a unique degree of wrath when I have the, when I plainly reject Christ. So Paul is playing a little bit of that game here, too. He does it in Galatians as well. Okay, how would we summarize these 26 verses? It can be a really helpful thing to, um, like if you, if you were to flip through this particular Bible that I've been using to teach Isaiah, I bracket off big sections of the text. I find where are the main ideas, I bracket them off, and I try to summarize 10, 12 verses wherever the breaks uh, may happen. So it can be a really helpful discipline to actually start summarizing Scripture. Okay, I read a big chunk, a pretty meaty chunk, an important part of the book of Romans. In a nutshell, what's Paul saying? So, in a couple of sentences, what is Paul saying in these 26 verses? Anthony's just trying to not be the first, but go ahead. Okay, so, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think Paul is basically saying what we boiled it down to is, you are terrible, <laughs> God is awesome, and then the great Phipps people added that God has made a way that you can be right to Him through Christ. So that's basically what we're doing. It's a good summary. Yes, sir. Oh, yell it loud and proud. Oh, okay. So, God is awesome, we are not, and God has made a way for us to be right with Him through Jesus Christ. Faith in Good. Anybody else have a variation of that, or is it all pretty much the same thing? 
There is the famous conjunction at the beginning of um, verse 21. And this is how um, you, could, you could even boil that down further. Mankind is altogether unrighteous, but God is perfectly righteous. And that righteousness will be conferred on unrighteous mankind. The great exchange. That's what this section is talking about. Now this can be really helpful because this is a, to some degree, a condensed version of the gospel. The best condensed version of Paul's gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, which we might read if we have time. I really need to get the clock hung back up. Um, But this can be helpful as we read Isaiah because I think that the Isaiah, as we as we've kind of carved up the book, forty two eighteen through forty four eight, follows a very similar paradigm. You are altogether unrighteous, and he'll even use the same language. But now God has, and then he goes through a laundry list of all these things God has done, which really helps. And, and we'll end here, but I want to I want to get you thinking about it. What is the gospel? How if we're summarizing things, how do you summarize the gospel? For years I have summarized it as Jesus Christ died in my place for my sins so that I could be right with God. I go immediately to salvation. The Bible doesn't talk like that. The Bible says the gospel is God's working out His plan in human history through Jesus Christ. And a, that's the gospel. And a benefit of the gospel is salvation. I always describe it as salvation. I always say, what is the gospel? Phil can be saved. And Paul would be like, that's not the gospel. I can actually describe the entire gospel and never use Phil's name. I can, I can do it and never use my name. And so we're going to see here, what, how does Paul paint the picture of the gospel? First of all, one of the most uh, fascinating parts of, of chapter 3 is that it's not a, it is not that God gives us righteousness. It's, talk, it's all about the righteousness of God. The gospel is that we have a very righteous God who is willing to jump through some hoops to make an exchange. But the gospel is that God is righteous and He fulfills His plan. And the result of that is He will exchange it for your unrighteousness. So, you have the unrighteousness of humanity. God is righteous. So you can even follow your headings if you're reading the ESV. God is righteous. No one else is. And then God is righteous. The access to His righteousness is found through faith. Okay? Now let's go back to Isaiah 40. Or 42. So Hope finished up last week um, bringing us through the first of the servant songs. The first, uh, I believe it's nine verses of 42. We won't we won't go through that again. But um, the servant is spoken of in pretty glowing terms, having the Spirit of God on him to bring forth justice to the nations. Um, it's very difficult to decide in uh, 42, 1 through 9, if the servant is someone or a bunch of someones, if it's some messianic figure or if it's Israel herself. And I think that it's actually a pretty... Um, flexible description. And this is, the, I, I, as we move through the servant songs, you're going to see, um, we won't get to one today, but we'll get to the next one soon. You'll see the servant is sometimes some messianic figure in the future. 
Sometimes it's Israel now. Sometimes it's God himself. And to distinguish between those, what's actually being uh, referenced is really, really important as we, as we interpret this. Because again, we, we read Isaiah 53. He was crushed. He was pierced. Okay? He will be... We read that and we think, how could any Jewish person not see Jesus in this? Written hundreds of years before the fact, and Jesus perfectly fulfills the picture of the servant in Isaiah 53. And their response would be, well, because that's, that's Israel. That's Israel. And to which I would say, yep. And it's this Messiah, too. You want to take it in Israel and lock it in history. And I just want to say, like, does Jesus ever take on the characteristics of Israel? He is, after all, the ultimate Israelite, as he is the ultimate human being. Therefore, we got to be really careful when we read the servant song. So that was last week. This brings us into, um, and it's important because we'll see how we pick up, because this isn't a servant song, but it's describing the servants. Okay. Verse 18 of 42. I'll read just a little bit. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. A couple of things. It's clearly referencing Israel here as the blind servant. Remember, um, the earlier part of 42 talks about the servant as the one who will have the Spirit of the Lord on him or it. Okay, so that seems like that's pretty positive. It ends the section that Hope took us through last week by talking about, I, verse 16, I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in a path that they have not known, I will guide them. It's talking very positively about the blind. Now it looks like an accusation against them. You are deaf, you are blind, and it's, and it's, and it's an accusation. And then verse 20, he sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear which immediately should send our biblical imaginations to the parables. And Jesus starts talking about, how do you hear a parable well? You have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Unlike the servant here. Continues, Yahweh was pleased for His righteousness sake, circle for His righteousness sake, to magnify His law and make it glorious. But, this is a people, Israel is a people, plundered and looted. Again, they're, they're experiencing this in the Babylonian captivity as slaves or as a conquered nation. They are, all of them, trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. He says, not only are they not being rescued, they don't even know to ask for it. They're so deaf and blind. And then here's this call saying, who will repent? Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Isaiah is saying, why do you not get this? Who will heed the Lord's words? And then you get into this section, as uh, Natalie pointed out in Romans 3, this is the section describing the Lord's judgment in Isaiah. Who gave up Jacob to the looter? This actually goes all the way back to their ancestor to their patriarchal father. It says their whole family. It's not just this generation. It's not just millennials that are screwing everything up. It's everybody for all of your history has screwed it up. 
Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not Yahweh against whom we have sinned? And this is Isaiah throwing himself in the mix. Against whom we have sinned, Isaiah says. In whose ways they would not walk. In whose law they would not obey. It's a bleak picture in verse 25. So he poured on him, the servant, Israel, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. He says, you haven't even learned. You're still sitting in Babylon, unrepentant. Your hearts are seared. You have not turned. So this is a lot like the first 20 verses of Romans 3. It paints an inability to understand, an inability to repent on one's own, an inability to know the things of God and to be like God in righteousness and holiness. And this ends with, and therefore, judgment must come. And the first three chapters of Romans talks about God's righteous judgment against the unrighteous. And then verse 21 of Romans 3, But now God has done this. 43, verse 1, But now, thus says Yahweh. And watch it turn. He who created you, O Jacob. Watch how God goes from angry and justifiably furious in His wrath to compassionate and loving and redemptive, merciful. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, indicating ownership. And then you're going to see a series. If you look on your handout on the back page, once the but now hits and the, and the, the text turns, you're going to see a series of statements that describes God's kindness to the wicked, to His people. The first one is, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. You're going to see all these incredible words of comfort to a people that have no prospects or sitting in captivity. And for all they know, the covenant might be null and void. They may no longer have access to God through the Abrahamic covenant that promised them a great name, a great nation, and a great place to live. But God comforts them. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. And then watch, this is a very important exercise when you're reading the Old Testament. Any allusion to the Exodus, slow down and see what they're saying. The prophets do it all the time. The Exodus was the defining event of Israel's interaction with God. It was the, divine, it was the defining redemptive event in their history where God overthrew the ten gods of Egypt the, the ten plagues weren't just, hey, look at me, flex my muscle, I'm really strong, I can make gnats go everywhere. It was God assaulting God after God of the Egyptians, finishing with the fertility God, killing off all the firstborn. He establishes His supremacy over the Egyptian gods, leads His people out in redemption, and then you see all of these little allusions. And to add to Hope's list of literary terms, my favorite thing to look for are allusions to other events. And why might the author be drawing our eye that direction? When he'll, he'll never reference the Exodus, and he's constantly referencing the Exodus. It's not verbatim, it's not 
overt, it's subtle, like this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Hmm, wonder what that means. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And every Israelite is, is recounting all these stories of the nation crossing the Red Sea with God's presence and the salvation they found there. Every Israelite is remembering God's promise to give them the land and the crossing of the Jordan and God's presence with them. Isaiah is saying, remember the one who formed Jacob, the one who called Abraham and formed this nation. Remember the one that brought you out of slavery and brought you into the promised land. Verse 3, For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What a fascinating name for him to take on himself. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Now, that could be referencing Egypt and their utter destruction. By the way, if you kind of study through what actually took place in Egypt when God assaulted them with the ten plagues, it would have crippled the nation what he did. Not only did he bury all their gods and destroy all of Egypt, he also went and killed off a whole bunch of their army in a flood or in a crashing down walls of water. Egypt would have been had a serious recession, to put it lightly. Um, this could be referencing that, but actually I think this is referencing what's about to take place as Cyrus, the new leader of Babylon, is going to send Israel back home. And in exchange, he will be able to conquer Egypt and Cush and Seba. So again, a reference that might have multiple meanings. And then here are... Uh, one commentator described these are the most tender words God ever says to His people in the Old Testament. Verse 4, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He's saying, I'm bringing everyone home. And he does, to some degree. This would have, been, this would have had a temporary fulfillment in Cyrus's edict as he sends the Jews home. And he says, Go rebuild Jerusalem. Go rebuild that temple of yours and go home. And that, this happens to some degree. I think its fullest fulfillment is obviously found in Matthew 28 and the bringing in of all the nations. But. So the first encouragement he gives is, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Now we aren't going to have time to go in and read all of these things, obviously, but I do want to go and highlight the main lines in each section. The next section will run from verse 8 down through verse 13, and the key um, comforting words in this particular section are verse 10. You are my witnesses. This is, a, this is a very small version of the trial motif that's going on on a large scale in Isaiah's book. But he's saying, I am on trial against the other gods. And he says to his people, you will testify on my behalf. You will be my witnesses. Now, they never actually got to do that. They don't get to go and testify to the goodness of God and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Obviously, they didn't get to do that. But when they return home, that is one of the clearest testimonies of God doing what He said He would do, and it affirms Him as a supreme God in all 
the universe. You are my witnesses. And I love the reasons he even gives for that. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And then he goes into his exclusive status as the one true God. He says in verse 12, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back, saying, watch what I do. No one can stop what I'm about to do. The proof of that is King Cyrus giving up valuable property. I mean, the Israelites were his property. And he gives them up. Now they continue to live on as a vassal state. And he's going to use them to have access to go to war against Syria, or against Egypt and against Cush. But he still gives up good labor in his own nation. Maybe a more powerful king compelled him. Which brings us to verses 14 and 15, the next section. His next word of encouragement. We can read these two verses. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Incredible titles. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. This is the first time we see him say that Babylon is going to take it on the chin for what they've done, which is fascinating. This is where like, I just give up trying to understand God sometimes. He's like, I did this, and I'm going to punish them. Okay. Everyone is a pawn in his hands. Even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. And then that encouraging line, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. I'm sure they were worried. Not only do they wonder if the Abrahamic covenant is null and void, they're probably wondering if the Davidic covenant is null and void. If they will ever have a king of that stature and that status again. David's throne was promised. Now, it had, it had stipulations with that promise, but they're wondering, did we mess this up so bad we will never have another king like David? And God says, well, you're in luck. I will be your king. Now think of the multitude of levels that that becomes the fulfillment of His Word. That He pulls them out. And He rules for them. And then we see a man with a sign above his head that says, King of the Jews, nailed to a cross. This is fulfilled in a number of ways. I am your King. His next promise starts in verse 16, runs all the way down to verse 21. These are some of the famous um, words that we'll be familiar with. Start in verse 18. Remember not the former things. Oh, hold on. I'm, I don't want to run past this Exodus illusion. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, Exodus, and a path in the mighty waters, Exodus, and who brings forth chariot and horse and army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished. Quenched like a wick. Exodus, 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 Exodus. These are things that the Israelites remembered fondly. These are things that they would always tell stories about because this is a clear demonstration of God's love for us. And then this bizarre line, remember not the former things, he says, nor consider the things of old. There's, here's the encouraging line from this section. Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He says, the way that I'm going to redeem you, the way I'm going to extend mercy, the way I'm going to bring you out is going to be altogether unexpected, altogether new. Run to the New Testament. No one saw that coming. No one saw Jesus preaching the message He preached. No one saw that Messiah being hung on that tree even though it was written. No one saw this coming. No one saw grace being offered with no conditions. Jews believed in grace. It's, it's a horrible holdover from the, the Reformation that they didn't. They believed in grace. They also believed that grace was something that could be merited. And, and we might discuss that another time. But you, they, they always assumed that you could put yourself in a position where you were at least more favorable to God, therefore He would extend mercy. You could never warrant all of it, but you had to be um, faithful to some degree to Torah, to um, His people, to the synagogue, or especially to the temple, to the sacrificial system, to the festival cycles. You had to position yourself in in a spot where you could receive God's Un, where you could receive His grace. And then Paul comes in and says, let me do you one better. Let me bring a new thing that you have not yet perceived. Grace is completely unmerited. There is no condition that goes with getting it. There are conditions with keeping it. It's the part we don't do a good job of teaching. But it is unconditioned in the sense that you can't earn it. But once it's given, there are conditions that go along with keeping it such as faithfulness. I mean, it's a covenant. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. God says, you're not even going to understand what I'm about to do. You can't, kind of what you said, Natalie, I can't, who am I to think as big as him? No one is guessing what God's about to do. Verse 20, the wild beasts will honor me. He's talking about bringing them home. Now, the idea of going back to Jerusalem would be terrifying. Most of the people that would be reading these prophecies at this time, or hearing these prophecies at this time, would have been born in Babylon. The vast majority of the people would have been natives to Babylon, would never have been home. Therefore, they've never crossed this desert. It's about 500 miles if you take a straight shot. If you wonder like a good Jew does, it's about 900 miles. They have no idea how they're going to survive this. There's no food out there. There's no water out there. There's bandits out there. How are we going to get home? And he says, in the back half of 19 actually, God says, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Yes? I think that that Exodus, that he's going back to Rapidum and Exodus 17 where they're out there looking around for water. Mm-hmm. And Moses goes and strikes that rock. They got one rock for the water. <laughs> and I think that he's saying, it's going to be better than that. Yeah. The, the water, you're not going to have to look for a rock for Moses to strike. It's going to flow. Yeah. And I think that God is, this is, this is also from Ezekiel 34. Uh, if you take the idea that God, God eventually gives up on bad leaders and just starts leading his people himself. So Exodus 34 is this big chapter of the shepherds of Israel. You guys have failed. I will be your shepherd, God finally says. And he says, in effect, he's saying here, you don't even need a Moses. I will be your Moses. I will lead you home. They come in the other direction now. 
He says, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rival, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they may, might declare my praise. Now, that's interesting. Why are you going to take care of us? Don't you just love us so much? Didn't you just say that? Eh, kind of, but mostly so that I'll be praised. Like, that's his underlying um, purpose. And, and if you're perfect... That's not arrogant. That's not selfish. That's not obsessed with oneself. That's, that's a right understanding of how things are. I will be praised for what I do. And then jump down to verse 25, the next encouraging thing. He goes, 22 through 24 is uh, a little bit of an aside. And, say, and by the way, you guys don't deserve this. You've kind of done a really bad job at this. You, you, you're not, your sacrifices are useless. I don't even want them. And then he says in verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now we're moving into some serious New Testament territory. Look at the beginning of chapter 44. But now, you have that phrase again, Hear, O Jacob, my servant, Jump down to verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Just like he said in the first servant song, 42. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. (laughs) He just reaffirmed the Abrahamic covenant. They are terrified that this is going to go south. We have screwed this up to such a degree. We are no longer special. We are no longer God's chosen people. And he says, it's going to be even better than you thought. Your descendants will have my spirit and my blessing. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. And then I just want to read these last three verses. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. You're saying, hey, where have I heard that? Revelation 1, 17 and 18, Jesus walks in and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Beginning and the end, first and the last, depending on your translation. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them, asking them to be witnesses, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not. There's that encouragement. There's that comforting word again. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You Are you my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? He asks. There is no rock. I know not any. I love that last line. He's like, if there was a God besides me, I know all things, so I'd know it. And there's not one. (laughs) (laughs) Always before when I would have looked at that, there is no other rock. I know not one. I would have always looked at it as a place to stand, a place to be secure, a place of strength. But the more I look at it after he's talked about all the water flowing in the plain desert, 
I think he's alluding back to the spirit flowing and the water flowing as opposed to strength and the rock to stand on. I think I, I think the rock, the illusion there is different than what I'd always held. Yep, and um, I think another great way to pull that thread through, I've got to find it. It's a new Bible, so I don't have anything underlined. Uh, Matthew, or John 7 and 8, and into 9, Jesus is just making a train wreck of a Jewish festival. And... Jesus just goes in and wrecks this thing. Where is it? Ah, 7, starting in verse 37. Jesus pulls this idea all the way through. On the last day of the feast, Jesus is at the... um, he is at the Feast of Booths, and there are these water rituals um, that are really profound that recall God's provision in the desert. Verse 37, Jesus comes in and messes with their heads. He says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I believe that's Zechariah 14, uh, 37. No. I don't know. Anyway, I thought that was a reference to Zechariah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, he's doing this all over this particular festival. So they would have had, on the seventh, the great day, they would have been marching into the city and, and they would have had all these this ceremonial water and they would be pouring it out actually on the altar as a sign of trust in God. You don't waste water in the ancient world. That's just ridiculous. They would be pouring it out as a sign of trusting Him to continue to provide. And G, like in the middle of this, Jesus goes and finds like a high spot and says, Hey! Uh, like, I'm the one that's like, you guys, you're worshiping me. I'm the one that all that water comes from. You're welcome. And then, you know, they, they obviously start hating him. So, Jesus is pulling at this same idea from um, Isaiah in our section where there is this, this idea of um, the water all the way through. Now, I want to read, I'm trying to figure out what, where did that connect to? Um, When he says, I will pour out my spirit back up in 44.3 in my offspring and my blessing on your sins, this is a whole section about God's promises coming true. And I just can't help but think about 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God, referencing Jesus, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. 
That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God and to His glory. This Jesus is, there were temporary fulfillments of many of these things taking place, but Jesus is the one in whom all their fullest expression comes to life, which pulls the Bible together, and it really is a cohesive unit. So I want to finish, I just have a few minutes left with this last section, this last paragraph on your handout. So there's a couple of things that I want to draw our attention to. Placing Isaiah 42 alongside Romans 3 illuminates a few critical truths about the gospel. First, and I don't think many of us struggle with this, but it's always helpful to remember, the plan to redeem and restore fallen humanity through an alien, or just another way of saying an external righteousness, has been in in place from the beginning. Salvation through imputed righteousness is not a novel New Testament idea. We see it all the way back in Isaiah. I would say you see it. Uh, Romans 4 would say you see it in Genesis with Abraham. Second, and this one is more fun. Second, we see that the gospel is a story about God, not about us. We benefit from gospel. That's the salvation part. But the good news is the work of God in history as Jesus fulfills all these things. Therefore, it's worth asking, how much of our evangelism is an effort to convert the lost to our experience with God? Do we win people to salvation or to the gospel? And how do we know the difference? And, like, if you can't present the gospel without telling your personal testimony, I might question if you're actually presenting the gospel. Because it's amazing how many people I'm winning to an experience that I had. To a life that I lived that is now cleaned up. To a more sterile existence as a Christian. Um, and that's, that, I would say that that is, A, sterile is the wrong word. But um, I think that that is the result of the gospel, the the. Um, experience after the fact of the gospel. Salvation is a consequence of the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus came and fulfilled all that he had to do. He came as God incarnate. He was put up on a cross and punished. The gospel is a lot less about me receiving a ticket to heaven and a lot more about God's righteousness being upheld and that Jesus was vindicated as he gets out of the tomb. Um, Just to, before everyone thinks I'm nuts and stones me, let me read to you Paul's gospel as he, um, it's just, he he says it in a very tight package in um, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, we are gender inclusive, of the gospel... I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in me. That's very telling, even the order of things. Let me tell you the gospel by which you are being saved. Not let me tell you the gospel of salvation. And then he gives this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers all at the same time. And jump down, where does he pick it up? He says, 
But in fact, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, and here's the end of the gospel. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Um, And then you can go and read the rest of it. In a nutshell, the gospel is Jesus Christ was incarnate, he was crucified, he was resurrected, and he was enthroned. God became a man, he died to restore, to maintain God's righteousness, knowing the salvation that he would grant. He was resurrected from the dead to never again die, and now he sits on the throne as the ruling king over all things. That's the gospel. And I would say the way that we should preach it is that story, according to the scriptures, and by the way, Paul only had the Old Testament to do it with, according to the scriptures, that's the gospel, and therefore your trust in that gospel, your allegiance to that king that sits on the throne, your faithfulness to him ensures your salvation. You see how it's a consequence of the gospel, not the gospel itself. Now, if I just said, if you believe in Jesus, do you want, like, believing in Jesus means you get to be saved. Like, isn't that just kind of really truncating things and removing the whole story? If you can, I would say, uh, I was, we, we were reading this book. I've, talked to you, I've mentioned it before in here, the King Jesus Gospel. We're reading it with our interns right now. And I, just, I told them, have you ever presented the gospel and needed to describe the nation of Israel? You're like, no. I said, you've like, you do know you're not preaching the gospel like the apostles did. What? Like the apostles only knew how to frame the gospel in the context of Abraham and Israel and Jesus as the perfect Israelite, as the perfect human being who could satisfy all of God's perfect requirements and therefore resurrects from the dead and reigns on the throne right now. Is that the gospel you preach? Like, no. I just say, like, do you want Jesus to clean up your life? They're like, yes. Okay. Not that, like, all is lost, because, by the way, I was, like, I was converted through that gospel. So there is, you get a little bit of a mulligan after the fact. But it's a reckless gospel. Um, I think the full gospel is much more powerful, because I can't convince everyone, based on my experience, that Jesus is all that awesome. I think the real gospel is way more powerful than my experience. So, anyway... That's all I got. You guys are ready to head out.